Uh, tonight I'd like to talk about the relationship between investigation or interest and pure exploration and freedom. Uh, when my father was coming toward the end of his life uh, last year at Mass General, um, my family had um, a peak experience in terms of coming together and cooperating and being together. Um, and we had to make a decision about you know, pulling all his life support and if it was time. Um, And there's a wide range of uh, belief systems in my family, ranging from uh, fundamentalist Christian to uh, atheist to Buddhist, uh, and to, again, to have this group of people come together and make some sort of cooperative decision around something so important was uh, a daunting thought, just to think of it. So they called the hospice and had this uh, palliative care a doctor come. And he came in the uh, room and then he called everybody to this other room. And just at that moment, a friend of mine um, who actually found IMS uh, was very nice and came to visit. And he, he said he was just coming to sit with my dad you know, before he died. So he just happened to show up at that moment. He came in the room, and he didn't really even say hi to my family. He just plopped himself down in a chair and got in this position and started sitting. (laughs) And they all kind of watched that, but they were a little distracted by having to go out of the room. So they all filed out, and this uh, new doctor that we hadn't met, um, I looked at him, and he looked at my friend, and then he looked at me, Um, And he said, I'm a Buddhist. And I said, oh. And I said, well, why did you say that? And he pointed to my friend. (laughs) And so we walked out of the room and toward this other room. And he was very soft-spoken, very quiet. um, And uh, I didn't warn him about anything. We just all got in there. And what I wanted was just to kind of put out, you know, so that later, after my dad died, there wouldn't be a lot of um, suffering or disagreement or regret about what we decided to do or if we called in a chaplain or didn't call in a chaplain, all these kind of huge issues um, that happened toward the end. So he got us in a circle, um, and he went around the room and asked us each what we thought my dad would want rather than what we would want. Then he went around the room and asked us what we would want. And it was really interesting because it was, again, there was this range of, of course, (laughs) of course we're going to call in a minister. And, you know, I mean, it was just, again, and there's there's Catholics and Protestants also within this mass of um, different ways that you could approach, you know, last rites or whatever. And when he got to my sister, my sister just started sobbing. And she said, I just can't understand why my dad has had to suffer so much. 
You know, and my father had just these horrible wounds, just horrible pain. I mean, I have never seen anything like it in the last month before he died, two months really. His ligaments and muscles were showing. His skin was just totally eaten away. Um, and this man just sat there quietly, and she just said again, you know, why? And he said three words. He got born. And it was amazing, you know, just, he got born. And my family was just like so shocked, so surprised, you know, and, and, but it was so true. It's like, it was just this moment of utter, you know, so much suffering and then just this open simplicity and truth and everybody was just silenced. And in that moment, it was like we were all, we all had something to share that was equal. And that's our suffering as human beings. And it's just we, we get ourselves born and we have to face this range of joy and sorrow, no matter if you're the Buddha <laughs> or if you're, you know, no matter what. The Buddha had back pain the last years of his life, very bad back pain. And so why? Why? Well, we get born. And then out of that sharing, you know, that simplicity of that sharing, um, out of him listening to what we each thought and felt, he took charge. You know, he, he took responsibility for the decision. And he listened and he said, from what it sounds like, your dad will not want somebody to be brought in here. He'll just want you all around and for you to be kind. You know, and it was so, it was just so wonderful that, you know, everybody could respect that because he listened. And again, there, there was this potential for this incredible division. And out of that just care and listening, again, which we're all learning here, just that profound respect. Everyone in my family, even though they didn't know what orientation he had, we can all, again, we can all share in this profound respect and listening to what somebody might want at the end and to put our wishes aside. So we're born into this profound world of change, uncertainty, just before I um, came to this retreat, I went down to near where my, a lot of my family lives on Cape Cod. And instead of visiting them <laughs> uh, that day, um, which I felt a little guilty about, but I felt that I needed to just go to the beach. And I knew if I visit my family, I don't make it to the beach. Uh, so I went to this place that I... Um, was new for me. Um, and I took a boat out to this place where there are a lot of seals. And I, I wasn't expecting um, to have such a wonderful time, but it was just like one of those peak experiences in life. And um, I left early in the morning, and no one was on the boat, and the man who, who runs this kind of um, seal tour... <laughs> 
uh, you're not, you know, the boat just goes outside the um, beach. It doesn't stop at the beach. But he dropped me off for the day. And he said, um, try not to disturb the seals. And, uh, but you can sneak up on them if you're careful. And so I didn't really want to sneak up with them or d- disturb them. And I just kind of sat there. I just sat there for a couple hours when he dropped me off. Uh, and I noticed this tour boat coming. And, and I started to be able to hear them. And I could hear their sounds and them kind of talking to each other. Um, and I kind of um, walked up to this place where I could hear them really loudly, but I knew if I got any further, they'd get, uh, they could see me and they got scared. And then I kind of crawled like a seal <laughs> over this little hump. Um, and there were as many seals as you could see, like from one end to the other. I mean, it was like infinite seals. And it was like, I was just like, whoa. <laughs> you know, it was really intense. Um, so I just laid there for four hours, uh, just kind of not lifting my head, because if I even put up my head a little, I would look like a human, right? And they didn't like that. Um, and just to kind of side thing is that when I grew up here in Massachusetts, if I went down to the Cape, I might see maybe one or two seals. Because even when I was a kid, they were, there was a bounty on them. And they were massacred. I mean, they were almost extinguished on this coast. So they're terrified of humans. And sometimes it will look like they're making contact with us. They look really, really deeply at us. But they're actually being hypervigilant. You know, they're really scared. It's, it's um, poignant. You know, so I would see the minute my head would get up, higher than um, eye contact with them, they would get really scared. Uh, And whenever um, some new wet seals would come in from the water, they'd come up and they would look at me like, what are you doing here? And then they'd look at the seals that were the older ones that were supposed to do something about me, and they'd look at them like, why aren't you doing something? You know, (laughs) what's going on here? But like they were tolerating me. And I did, what I didn't know is they kept getting closer and closer and closer. And at one point, I was watching them, you know, scratch. And I was like, do seals have fleas? You know, <laughs> but I couldn't move because if I moved, they would, um, I knew they'd get scared. Uh, so what I didn't know is that the tide was coming in. And they were getting closer and closer because they had to keep moving up. And really, it was like from me to the front row, they were right there. And I'm like, whoa. You know, and it was really, I don't know, you know, you have these experiences in life, but just to, to watch them relate and to see how some of them would go to sleep and some of them would be alert. And it, it was almost like they didn't have to work it out. The rest would go to sleep. Some would, you know, wake up and they'd go on their bellies. And like the ones that were feeling safe and protected, they would just get on their bellies and totally relax and fall asleep. You know, and it was just just so interesting to watch that, just the the world of nature, you know, just being in it in that kind of tribal way that's so different than our human world. You know, so I felt so grateful and happy, you know, just wonderful. And then I went to my niece's house, and my great-niece is four, and for the first time, <clears throat> she wanted me to um, sleep in her bed with her. 
usually she asks that, and then at the last minute, you know, she freaks out, and, you know, she'll sleep with her mom and dad. So um, she, I'm like, are you sure? And she's like, yeah, you know, because she's done this a number of times, and she has this teeny bed. I mean, it's like this little bed. It's called a Barbie bed, and she has pink Barbie sheets on it and a pink Barbie pillow. And I'm like, boy, this is going to be quite the night, you know, because it's really little. And I'm like jammed up against the nightlight. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, you know, when you love somebody, you'll do anything, right? So I'm lying in the bed like. And unbeknownst to me, she had the flu. <laughs> and about an hour into it, she threw up all over me. And it was just like incredible, just... <laughs> It was, <laughs> it was like really intense, you know, just one of those really bad flus. And then, you know, we cleaned up that, and then it was like sneezing and coughing all over me. And I don't exactly have the most, the strongest immune system. You know, I was born dead, you know. And, you know, it's like it's been years of sort of dealing with catching things easily. And I knew I was coming to the retreat, and I didn't want to start sick, right? So I'm lying there like about four in the morning, no sleep, just cleaned up the vomit, you know, the snot. I mean, it was quite the night. And I just kind of thought about just, just that range in one day. You know, the seals to the vomit. You know, I mean, it's just like, that's, isn't that how it is? I mean, couldn't you get 24 hours of the seals? You know, why do you have to get the vomit and the seals? But usually that's how it goes. You get this incredible range of experience. And it was really, for the first time, I think, in my life, like, with all that, <coughs> you know, physical substance that we don't tend to enjoy, like vomit and mucus, um, I was really just able to just let it wash through. You know, it's okay. And with the fear of getting sick, I just kept seeing, am I okay right now? I could project it into the future, and I'd come back to, am I okay now? And I could really feel like, okay, the virus is there, but I could welcome it and let it just be. But I'm not saying that's always how I've been. You know, often I would tighten up and get really afraid of getting sick, and I would get sick. You know, so this is, who knows when I might get it, but it's been, it's been since, uh, just before the retreat started, so this is a miracle in and of itself. <laughs> so, you know, it's great. So I'd like to read a passage from a book I've been reading called The Blue Bear. And it's a story of um, uh, a man being a guide in the Alaskan wilderness, but it's actually a, a story of friendship. But this is a, a passage about his love of Alaska. The wind howls, the earth quakes, the tides rise and fall. People step into the landscape and vanish without a trace. And all the while the ice is there, massive, sterile, and cold, waiting to return. An entire ecosystem evolves, spinning the elemental strands of sunlight, energy, and rainfall into the dynamic, whirling interplay of creation, procreation, 
predator, and prey. It is for this that I love this place. I love it fiercely for its power of recovery after being scalped down to bedrock by ice or violent tsunamis, for the intricate play of forces as the convalescent earth unfolds its wealth of indomitable life. I love it for the power it shows us in the weight of its rain, which in many places along the coast approaches 200 inches a year. I love it wildly for the songs it sings in the voice of a whale's breath or the rusty tracheal trumpeting, trumpetings of a flock of cranes. I love it for its turbulence and eagerness, and I love it when it storms or is calm. Sometimes in the spring, when the new green leaves and first delicate blossoms are aching into bloom, I love it the way a dog loves to ride in the back of a pickup truck, and I want to run side to side barking and flapping my tongue. Can we love the practice that way? You know, if you look over the course of today or the last few days and the just amazing range of experience and then our reaction to our experience, can we learn to love that, that whole show? Mindfulness practice is, is that sense of learning to love the whole show and to not pick and choose, to not get attached to any certain experience like the seals, so that we then push away the vomit. You know, it's like, again, it's, it's being able to show up for life as it is. When I first started to practice, you know, if I noticed thinking was happening, I would literally hit the thoughts, like, with a baseball bat, and they'd be home runs. You know, it would just be like thinking, wham! <laughs> you know? And it would always be a past, you know, always in the past. It was like I was so not in the present moment. There'd be this sort of thought that had already gone, and I'd be chasing it, wham, wham, wham! You know, it's just like, that's how little inner space there was. You know, I was in the broom closet, you know, big time. There was not any sense of spacious sky. I mean, that thought of the mind being like a blue sky, it was just like unthinkable. You know, there's just like identification with almost every experience. Um, And when I came to a retreat, luckily I didn't feel like I had to do it perfectly. Um, And I had to recover from the sittings. I used to... um, in the walking periods, I'd go up to my place where I was staying, my first retreat, and I'd have a thinking bath. So I would lay there during the walkings and just think for an hour. And I would just sort of <laughs> bathe in it. And then I'd go down and, you know, fight again in the sitting. And then I'd go up and lay down in my room and think. And then in the afternoon, I'd go out for a four-hour walk, like, whew. You know, just like, oh, you know, it was just like so hard. There was just, I'd have to find space from my own mind, you know, for hours out in nature. And then I'd come back to tea and think, well, you know, maybe I can make it through the night. 
you know, but it was just, I don't think we remember our first retreat. You know, it's just, that's how hard it usually is. You know, it's, it's amazing, really, when we look at where we start from in this practice. And I think it, it just requires a lot of um, humor and patience to just get that sense of accepting where we are. So I can see that, you know, that when I'm quiet now, I just think thoughts. There's no problem. I listen to them. I don't even have to avoid the content. It's like there's usually enough mindfulness that there's no need to push them away. They're okay, just the way they are. They just come and go. And sometimes if it feels like I'm getting caught, I'll just go to the breath or something. But it's, there isn't that feeling that I have to get rid of them or that they're a problem. That's the space. You know, I can't under I mean, I can't overemphasize enough the the practice we get with something even pleasant or neutral, like sounds or breath, noticing it come and go. You know, we might think that you know it becomes boring or there's not much happening, but getting the practice of noticing things come and go by themselves that aren't really too problematical and seeing that we don't have to do anything with them, but notice them, is so critical to our understanding. When we have pain in the body, or pain in the mind, or heart, it's like suddenly when we have a pain in the mind, or body, or heart, we think we have to do something with it. And even with something like enjoyment or gratitude, we often think we have to do something with these things. You know, and I'll explain that in a while. You know, so that sense of letting things come and go by themselves is huge, because when fear comes up, we tend to think we have to do something with it, yeah? We have to meddle with it, we have to fix it, we have to get rid of it. If loneliness comes up, we think we have to be with somebody. You know, it's like there's, again, we switch into a shift out of the experience. And that, um, that is being motivated by aversion and attachment, not by interest in the loneliness itself or interest in the experience of the fear itself. I come from um, a long lineage of... Um, generations where if anger came up in my family, um, (laughs) my father had the right to kind of take up all the space with it and be violent and act out. But if we were angry, we got (laughs) smashed, you know. So um, for me to learn to open to the experience of anger, even an angry thought was terrifying. You know, the conditioning is so deep that it's not okay to have that experience. Um, you know, so I've worked with that for many years, and, but I watched that my, the kids that I raised, my sister's kids and their kids, are still really struggling with that lineage. 
And I've been watching my great-niece kind of um, struggle with this. And I just got to know her a little bit last year. When, you know, when she was three, now she's four. And last, it was last November or something, or the spring, I don't know. I went down with a friend, um, and she had never seen me with anybody. Uh, and she's very attached to me. Uh, and she got very jealous of this person, but she, no, but you know, again, she—I didn't like—I didn't know she had the flu. I didn't know she was at this attached, or that she would get jealous. Uh, yeah, it was my um, niece's fortieth birthday party, so we had this party. Then we all went back to the house, and we were all kind of watching *101 Dalmatians*, I think, or something, you know. And um, this person was lying on the floor, and we were kind of talking, and I didn't know that. She was probably strategizing this for days, uh, but when I wasn't, when no one was looking, she went over and um, just stepped on his head, like just like smashed his head. It was really <laughs> painful. <laughs> and he got up and he looked at me and he said, "I told you she didn't like me." <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and my family was horrified. It's like you know this kind of action, you know, anger, you know, you're not supposed to show it. You're supposed to repress it, especially if you're a girl. You know, this is not okay behavior. So everybody jumped on her. And, you you know, we all know what this is like. They were like, apologize. This isn't okay. You know, you you were wrong. You know, just, just this pouncing on her, you know, apologize. You know, and she looked completely confused. And she did what they said. She apologized. Everything kind of went back to normal. And then she kind of crawled in my lap, and she whispered in my ear, but I really do hate him. (laughs) 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 Just to make the point, she said, I really, really hate him. And it was so interesting because, you know, here the whole family just told her it wasn't okay to hate. And yet, what do we do with it if it comes up? So I kind of took her aside and I said, well, it's not okay to step on people's heads. You know, it's like that isn't okay. But actually, it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to hate. And she got this little gleam in her eye. It was like... Just this, oh, I could feel like this relaxation in her. And then in about an hour, I could see that that made space for her liking this person. It's like she, it, it opened her up. You know, she was okay. She could play again. You know, so it's really important for us to see what if this energy of even dislike comes up. You know, we can be walking along and see somebody's shoes and dislike them, you know, just because of their shoes. And we get to see the sense of why do we have this restriction around looking, or why the quiet, why the stillness, you know, why the zombie-like atmosphere. It's because if we get quiet enough, we'll see that just when we look at somebody, there'll be a judgment. It's that condition. It's so deeply conditioned. And if we're looking, 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 we're not going to see that. And then we'll never come to grips with judging and disliking. You know, so play with it a bit. You know, it's like you'll make contact with your eyes, even with a sock or even a piece of hair. It doesn't even have to be the whole head. You know, we <laughs> it's so funny. It can be like, 
So the way somebody walks through a door or whatever, but it's like it'll be contact, unpleasant. It's not even from one mind moment to the next. That's how quick it is. It's simultaneous with a sound, with a sight, with a smell, with a taste, with a thought. It can be unpleasant, pleasant, or neutral. If we're not mindful of it, there'll be a judgment. And to, to be able to be okay with that, to not take it personally, it's just not liking. Or it's just liking. When I was on staff here, uh, every year there's a staff retreat, uh, and that year Joseph set the retreat with us. And the way that I dealt with this at that point in time was I tried to avoid any kind of seeing that I was judging. So I would never eat in the dining room because I didn't want to face my judgments. And I, I kept myself quite secluded. And I think that the instinct to keep myself secluded the first years of practice was really wise. I think the more you seclude oneself, the more you start to have the chance to see it more clearly. So that year I decided that I was ready to sort of go in the dining room and eat and kind of watch what came up. And it was so painful for me. I couldn't bear it. You know, like I'd be watching people going through the line and the judging, you know, in my mind was so painful. I turned my um, chair so that I actually was looking out the windows of the dining room and I would eat looking out the window because I couldn't bear the judging. And then after a couple days, I kind of turned my chair a little and I was watching Joseph and Joseph would sit there staring at everybody. And he was eating, but he'd stare at everybody and I'd be like, how does he do that? How can he stand this? You know, so at the end of the retreat, I said to Joseph, you know, what are you doing there? How can you stand to just sit there eating and watching people? And he said, I just sit there judging. You know, what's the problem? You know, it was like he was looking at me like, you know, what's your problem? Don't, doesn't everybody do that? And it was so liberating. It was like, oh, <laughs> it's okay, you know? And it's, it's just like, it's like that lightening up, um, but also not getting caught in it, yeah? You know, so with my niece, you know, it's like, I hate this person. Okay, that's okay. You don't hurt somebody with it, but then if you can let that come and go by itself, like you would a sound and a sight, you don't have to buy into it. And it makes space for whatever else is supposed to appear. Often on retreat, it might not be every day, it might be every other day or every couple days, but um, there'll be a place of practice where the concentration, the mindfulness, the energy, sometimes the equanimity, will come together. And it'll feel like it's really pure. And we'll call this good practice. Uh, But it's really pure. And we'll think that that's how it should be. And in those places, we don't have resistance to what's happening. We, are, we have energy. We're often interested in what's happening. Pure exploration's happening. Um, 
And again, we'll get this idea that this is how all day should be, and that we think it's how all the next day should be. Uh, But in that time of purity, and it can be like just a few moments, it can be some minutes, it can be hours, but in that purity, it's like you're taking a dirty cloth, our heart, and washing it. So in that purity, we're cleansing the heart. This is called the path of purification. And you know when you take a dirty cloth and wash it in soap and water, you know, what happens? The dirt comes out. And the little bad joke about practice, the the one kind of unfortunate way that it happens, is that as just as the energy's going down, you know, and you know when you feel like you're losing it, you know, you can, it's hard enough that you're losing it, but act in that place where you're losing it, the dirt's coming out. And we tend to not have the energy to open to whatever's opening up for us that we don't want to see. And this is how the practice goes. It's like there's p- times of purity and then purification. And the dirt that's coming out is aversion and attachment. We have to see it to get free of it. Uh, So like the energy's going down, and it's like we're getting clobbered by this next layer, and we usually resist. And the reason we're resisting is because we're wanting the good practice back. We don't want the purification, and we usually fight it. Understanding that this is happening makes all the difference. It's like as you start to see that this is inevitable, it's happening until you're fully enlightened. You know, that that's so, it's like you start to be okay with this process of purity, purification, purity, purification. And if you've practiced a long time, you'll usually have a relationship to what's coming up like this is still happening in my practice. You know that word still? It's like, it's like, it's like uh, abrasive, like it's still (laughs) happening in my practice. Like what's wrong with me? It's all my fault. I can't believe I'm still getting caught in this. And it's not the story that matters. What matters is that it's some version of aversion and attachment that's happening because we're not fully enlightened. And this is where that purification is showing. And like this morning, what I was saying around, you know, these chronic physical pains or chronic emotional stuff, these are our greatest friends because they're our lifetime teacher in terms of facing aversion and attachment. The very thing we're thinking is still happening and we've just got to get rid of it to get free is usually our greatest, again, our greatest friend, our greatest teacher for working with aversion, for seeing how we want to get rid of things versus be free. If we have the relationship that something shouldn't be coming up, that we got rid of it, It's not freedom. And it's so hard for us to face it. I learned it first through back pain. You know, in 79, my back went out so royally once when I was sitting, and I had to do three months of lying down, and the next year, uh, five months of lying down practice. 
Um, and I kept, you know, thinking that everything was going to be all okay when I could not have back pain. And finally, I started to get that even 20 years from then, freedom wasn't getting rid of the back pain. It was how I was relating to the back pain. And I've used these lower vertebrae in my <laughs> sacrum as my teacher. It's like if I have a kind of twang, you know, those twangs or, you know, whatever you get, you know, with the chronic pain, you know. When I hear that little twang happen, it's like, mm, do I want to be free or do I want to get rid of this back pain? And the pain in my back has taught me so much about working with fear or terror or, you know, like the, that, the chronic fear of rejection is like my favorite difficult you know, thing that appears. You know, that's what my karmic knot, usually I, it gets me. And again, the last few years, it's just been like in my face. <laughs> you know, and when I'm at my best, I'm grateful for it. When I'm at my worst, it's like, oh, when am I going to get free of this? When I'm at my best, it's like, oh boy, you know, this is teaching me how to work with aversion. So purity, you know, it's like we, we're able to receive what's happening, whether we're eating the salad and we're chewing and receiving. But it's usually we're allowing ourselves to be touched by the universe. It's often ordinary moments that we're receiving, like a step or a breath or fear. And we're able to allow what's happening. We're connecting, we're intimate with the experience, but we're detached. Detachment doesn't mean disconnected. It means that we're not taking it personally. So again, the peak experience is that when we're actually within the experience, but we're also detached. It's this wonderful experience of being within, connected, and detached. So there's no need for resistance whatsoever. Our defense system is aversion and, and attachment. And so there's this range of pleasure, pain, right? And the stream of change. And so we can go along with just this flow of change and accepting we're clear. And then something unpleasant might happen. And our conditioning, what we've protected ourselves with, is the pushing away or the pulling back, the fear, or pushing away. Or something pleasant is happening like a great sitting, and it starts to pass, and we hold on. This is our protective system. This is our defense. And it's what has kept us sane our whole life. So we come to practice, and we hear about aversion and attachment, and we, we feel that sense of separate self that's just temporary and arises to protect us when mindfulness or metta aren't there, and we decide to get rid of it. That's not pure exploration. That's not interest. That's reinforcing aversion. And it, again, I can say this, but it's very hard when we're actually in the thick of something very painful 
to remember the difference between interest and pure exploration and fiddling with things, messing with things, you know, trying to work it out. Like if I just work out this, you know, that physical pain, then I can get enlightened. You know, if I just get rid of this fear of abandonment, then I'll be free. And it's very hard for us to see in those moments even that aversion's happening. I mean, I can't tell you how many hours I've sat, you know, with some pain in the body, just with my attention in it, and really being with the burning, the twisting, the fire, um, and there's this subtle staying with it because I'm going to get rid of it. It took me years to figure out what I'm telling you. You know, it took me years to realize if there's this sense that I'm staying with it, staying with it, because deep down (laughs) I can't wait to get rid of it, (laughs) that it's better to move away from it. Because it isn't mindfulness. It's aversion. You know, and that's why there's this emphasis on the ability to go to what's neutral, like the breath or sound. You know, if it's really hard, open your eyes. Our systems don't feel safe when we try to get rid of aversion and attachment. You know, and this is the critical part of the piece of purity, purification. You know, and the best way that I can describe this is if you have a flower, like as a bud, and the metaphor for awakening or enlightenment is the flower opening. When the flower opens, It opens to everything. It doesn't pick and choose between what is pleasant or unpleasant or good or bad. The flower just opens to life as it is. And (laughs) we tend to want to pull the petals open. And that makes our system very afraid. So trying to, again, trying to get rid of aversion and attachment is very different than understanding aversion and attachment, not taking it personally, allowing it to come and go like you would the breath or sound, body sensations. In that way, awakening or enlightenment is, again, seeing that these things aren't a problem. It makes, you make space for them rather than getting rid of them. I've been um, teaching a young adult retreat here, I think it's about 13 years now. I can't remember exactly how long. Um, And often there's about 60 young adults, teenagers here. This year, um, at the campfire at the end, they decided to do skits, um, and one of the skits was making fun of me. And... um, (laughs) So uh, they were like, this, this young woman got up and she was sitting there. And um, <laughs> she was acting just like me. And it's horrible, you know, when somebody's acting just like you. <laughs> so I just, it, I could feel myself going, oh no, <laughs> resisting myself and then kind of opening. And she was, t- she was going, yep, just sit there without moving. Yep, Michelle, we're going to sit there with 
opening to the pain, opening the pain. And then she was making fun, you know, yeah, sit there for an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, just, yep, simple opening to the pain, opening to the pain. And then she went, I don't want to be with this pain. (laughs) I don't want to be with this pain. And it was so great. She just acted out resistance. You know, it's just like, how many times do we feel that way? I don't want to be with this pain. You know, that we feel that way millions of times in the day. You know, and I just love that beauty of just that simplicity, that honesty. Can we allow that? That's making space. You know, when we, the blue sky, when we can finally go, oh, it's okay not to want to be with something. That melts the ice. And you can explore it. You can be interested in it. You can allow it. It's like allowing the flower to close. Allowing yourself to tighten, allowing yourself to contract is the most important part of this practice. Being okay with getting lost. You know, it's just tightening. It's just contracting. And if your your body and mind knows that it's going to be okay to close, it's going to feel safer to open. And to just really feel that, the more you can feel that physically, of just it's just tightening. You know, you can just practice. You can stay as tight as you can for so long. Eventually, your system gets tired of it. You know it finally will go, okay, it'll open again. Tight, tight, tight. I used to know, tight, 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 tight. (laughs) It's just tight. (laughs) I don't want to be here, I don't want to be here, I don't want to be here. You know, sometimes exaggerate it in your mind. You don't have to yell it out loud. But you can imagine, you know, sometimes I come in here and I just imagine what's happening in everybody's head, you know. (laughs) You know, if you could just multiply what's in your head times, you know, everybody in this hall, it's loud, you know. It might seem quiet in here, but it's noisy. (laughs) Hmm. That's that great joke. Would you volunteer to have your mind broadcast <laughs> even for five minutes. It's humiliating. You know, it's just it's humbling. But it would be so helpful for everybody if you would volunteer. <laughs> it's a bodhisattva act. <laughs> This is, um, I'm a fear type, and I have this calendar every year. It's the worst-case scenario handbook. (laughs) I don't know if you have seen that, but every week there's a different disaster. And I just, just so soothing to me, you know, to (laughs) read this. So (laughs) a couple months ago, it, um, (laughs) this was, it was called How to Stop a Runaway Horse. And they have, if you don't want to read the whole thing, they have a tip of the week, which is a shortened version of, you know, 
what to happen if your car goes underwater or, you know. <laughs> it's, if you're not a fear type, you don't understand how important this is, but if you are, it's so soothing if you're a fear type. So this is tip of the week on how to stop a runaway horse. Horses bolt when they are frightened or extremely irritated. Now just think of yourself. Just, this, is, this is just you know, a metaphor for when we're afraid. Horses bolt when they are frightened or extremely irritated. The key response is to remain in control of the situation without causing the horse greater anxiety. Can we do that? <laughs> Talk to it reassuringly and rub its neck with one hand. <laughs> Yelling and screaming and kicking the horse will only ag agitate it more. <laughs> You know, it took me years to learn that about myself. You know, yelling and screaming and kicking at myself wasn't helping. You know, and <laughs> but if you could hear what people are doing to themselves in here or outside, you know, about their own practice, we don't feel like we're doing it right. And then we have so much doubt in ourselves or the practice or whatever, just because we get afraid, or we get caught in wanting. You know, we're so hard on ourselves. So that ability to throw away the whip and to allow oneself to trust how it's unfolding for us, you know, the purity, purification, purity, purification, being here, getting lost, being here, getting lost, to trust that, that there's nothing wrong, that it's not our fault, that that's how the practice goes. We all want it to be a constant peak experience. It's okay to admit that. You know, that's what our little heart and mind wants. You know, we want to be perfect all the time. We want it to be easy. Um, and it's not so easy, this practice. It's called the noble path for a reason. It's like it's not, it's very hard. So difficult emotions or difficult physical sensations, mental states, they don't need to be transformed. What needs to be transformed is our understanding of them. They don't need to be changed at all. You know, and this is, this is a key to working with anything difficult, unpleasant. It's like what we need is understanding. What we need is compassion. So change isn't changing the emotion or the pain, but the, ch the change is the attention that connects. Change is the attention that cares. Uh, and we heal any learned resistance. We heal the disconnect whenever we show up for the experience. Whenever we show up for the experience. I have a, a 
a good friend's student that has uh, is a fear type and has been working with it for some years. Uh, and he came to a, re- a retreat this spring, uh, and he, he went through the same kind of pattern of the first seven, ten days of sort of resisting it, resisting it. And he came in the hall one day. And you know, this can sound very simple, but he said he tried every single tactic he's ever tried to not experience it. You know, and it's just, it's just that's how it always went. That's how it, you know, continued to go. And then at a certain moment, he said to himself, well, maybe I could try being mindful of it. I mean, that's, isn't it interesting? This was years. And, and it was just like, well, maybe, you know, it's, it's usually a last resort, yeah? It's, <laughs> it's like, well, maybe I, be, <laughs> maybe I can try being with this experience. And it, that's like a little white flag goes up. You know, it's like <laughs> the battle is over. There's that moment of acceptance. Um, and it was like he described it as sort of falling into it. He just fell into it. And sometimes, you know, even Nibbana is described that by a Mahasi Saida. You fall into it. You fall into the present moment. It's like there's that holding, holding, and you can't make it happen. It's, it's almost like it happens by a kind of grace. But there's just this willingness to fall into the unknown. You know, and when, when we describe the word rain, you know, like today, you know, you can say the word rain how many times, but how much do we actually drop in? How much do we fall into the unknown mystery of that experience and just taste it for the first time? You know, that requires such a vulnerability to experience something free from the past. Um, and what I'm saying is to do that with a sound, with a breath, with rain, is wonderful and hard enough. But to do it with fear or anger, you know, to be that interested, to be willing to, again, fall into it as if it's the first time, this takes great courage, and it, and it takes a kind of grace. So it, it really requires a lot of just um, courage to keep going through this pra- process of purity, purification, purity, purification. And at some point, there'll be just that ability, you'll fall in. And I say, have fun falling. You know, just like, a lo- you know, just see if you can allow that grace to happen, fall in, and try not to take it personally when you can't. And if you, if you see if you can kind of go with the times where you're resisting, where you're tightening, if you allow that and you don't yell and scream and kick at the horse, um, that frees up the energy to go through the purification. And there'll be more equanimity, more contentment more peace with this process. So you don't have to force this investigation or pure exploration I'm talking about. It's more kind of going easy with that not being there, you know, allowing this range of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And then you'll find that there'll be these moments where you fall in, it opens up, 
there's this purity. It doesn't last. It, the purity cannot last if you're moving toward greater and greater freedom. There has to be another layer of aversion and attachment appearing so that you can keep going with this liberation process. So again, there's nothing wrong when the purification is happening. It's good practice. Difficulty in practice is good practice. Purity and ease in practice is good practice. It's all good practice. Let's sit for a minute. May all beings who take birth in this universe be liberated. <laughs> 